just a content warning for today's episode that there is some discussion about sexual harassment, sexual assault and domestic violence. So please consider this before listening, particularly if you might find this triggering. Women are finally starting to get into these roles that have been denied to us for hundreds of years. And I still stay in 2020. When a woman does something for the first time, we ought to be celebrating it. We ought to be putting her up on the pedestal and saying, that's a bloody fantastic thing that, you know, that you've done. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Whitworth, an international gender expert who began her career in the Royal Australian Navy and has just written her first book, Against the Wind. Jennifer forged an impressive and unusual military career over the course of nearly four decades, shaped by a series of events in her life that spurred her to become a force for change. She is now a mentor and advocate for women and recently left the military to establish her own consultancy. I spoke to Jennifer in the lead-up to International Women's Day and was absolutely taken by her story, the challenges and obstacles she's overcome, and her work to support other women here in Australia and around the world. Here's my chat with Jennifer Whitworth. So Jennifer, you've had a career of firsts, which started with you joining the Navy as a teenager straight out of high school. What was it that drew you to a career in the military and what did you want to be? Hmm. Well, um, I think I was drawn to the military because actually both my parents had been in the Air Force. My father uh, was an Air Force pilot who um, was tragically killed in a flying accident um, in 1961. In fact, my mother was pregnant with me at the time. Um, And my mother had also been a clerk in the Air Force. So, uh, and that's how they met. And so um, for me, you know, growing up, my mother had remarried and had three more children, but we grew up knew, knowing everything about my father and there were no secrets in the household and, you know, we were, um, the extended family were always around us and, you know, his memory was there and some, you know, some artefacts and, I mean, I still have his Air Force hat, for example, and uh, you know, some, of, some of the other memorabilia from his time in the Air Force. Um, so I think there was that. Um, I think also too I was, I, I came from a high school, it was a girls' selective high school in Sydney, um, and we wore hats and stockings and gloves and it was very, you know, rules-based and um, and my home life was as well too. And in, and in my book, um, Against the Wind, I do recall a story around a ship's bell that my mother used to have in the kitchen and she'd ring, you know, once for my older sister, twice for me and three times for my younger <laughs> sister. So, <laughs> so it was kind of like this, I think my whole sort of young you know, young life and my teenage life was in this environment where it was uh, quite regimented. Um, quite rules-based, you know, we had our allocated chores and all sorts of things. And so um, for me it felt quite a natural step to go into an employment occupation that was service-oriented and, uh, you know, where where you wore a uniform. And the other, um, I had also applied for the New South Wales Police at the same time and I did get both, but I elected to go with the Navy. Um, I'm not sure why. Maybe I thought it was a bit of a challenge. Um, But, (laughs) you know, but any services back in those days were, this is 1981. Mm. Were there many other women in the Navy at that time or was that something (laughs) that had even crossed your mind that you might be 
perhaps in the minority? I, to be honest, when I was uh, going through the process in year 11 and 12 to, to sort of consider a Navy career and doing some um, interviews and some discussions with the recruiting centres and to get an idea of what was available, I really had no idea about the Navy whatsoever. I had no idea that there were so few women. It didn't even occur to me, I think, because I was brought up um, you know, in an environment where I was encouraged to think about being anything I wanted to be, um, you know, get a good education and then step out and do whatever job it w- was that I wanted to do and not just be restricted to what were then quite common jobs, so, you know, like being a secretary or, um, you know, working in retail or something like that. So um, so I just thought, oh, well, I'm just going to join the Navy. I really had, as I said, no idea what it was like. I really knew nothing about ships, to be honest. Um, and But, of course, women back in those days didn't really need to know about ships because we didn't serve at sea. Um, we didn't deploy and all those sorts of things. So I kind of went into it, I think, with very heavy blinkers on. Um, and it wasn't really till I was in and part of the environment and the culture that I realised that there were so few women. So I think in a, in, in, 1980, well, in the early 1980s, women comprised about 7% of the Navy workforce. Um, so we're talking about a handful of, you know, women officers and women sailors. We, we, probably, we, probably, all, we probably all knew each other back in those days. <laughs> so few of us. Do you know how that compares to the figures now? Because I'm assuming it is still male-dominated, although there's probably, you know, a lot more women. Yeah, no, it's still very much a male-dominated organisation. Um, our figures as of uh, 2019 were uh, 18.6% of the total ADF. Um, in the right. Navy, uh, it's around, I think, around about 22%. So we're certainly doing, um, you know, quite well. Uh, Air Force, of course, is a little bit higher because it's a it's a service that is probably more amenable to to having women in, in the majority of its roles. Um, so, yeah, so look, we've, we've done better and over the last 30-odd years, but I say it's kind of like, you know, it's 39 years since I joined the Navy and we've sort of really only gone from about 7% to 22%. Right. And you mentioned that, you know, women weren't at sea back when you began. So what did a typical workday look, look like for you back then? Well, I was a logistics officer. Um, when I joined, uh, there were only three occupations available to women who joined straight from school like I did, um, logistics, administration or communications. And I figured that logistics would be the one that would probably give me you know, some form of qualifications, um, experience and skills that I could use if I transitioned out of the ADF at some stage and wanted to continue down that path. Um, so, you know, look, in the main, it was uh, very much a, an office job. Um, or a warehouse job or a stores job. Um, and, and my male colleagues would be doing the same when they were shore-based. It was just a very different environment and different job when they were at sea. And that's not something that I got to experience until 15 years later. And did you have a sense that that felt unfair at that point or was it just the norm? I can I can relay one story to you that I guess gives a good indication of how unfair I felt that life was for women. So I was actually based at HMAS Albatross, which is the naval air station in Nowra. And I think at the time, this is about 1983, 84, and I was a sub-lieutenant. And uh, we were having a mess dinner, which is a formal dining in night for the members of the mess. Um, and there, there would have been about four or five of us female officers on the base, um, of varying ranks, um, we only, we didn't have a mess 
an evening mess dress like the men had. We had to just wear our daily uniform. So I rock up at the mess for this mess dinner, um, resplendent in my, my white dress and white shoes, only to be told by the executive officer that uh, he had previously told all the women officers to come in civilian clothing, presumably so that they would look much prettier in the wardroom because the VIPs that were invited to attend the mess dinner were some local councillors, you know, from the, the city right. council. And to me that just, that, that was a very much the culture of the time where women officers were just there, I think, you know, they just thought we were there to, to pretty up the mess. Mm. And wasn't there, I think there was another comment in your book about people saying to you that you were joining to find a husband, <laughs> <laughs> that that was your reason for joining the Navy? Uh, you know, uh, that was uh, actually a comment that was made to me by the senior female officer who was on my um, selection panel to join as an officer. And, look, it might have come across very clearly that I really didn't know much about the Navy. That's fine. And they could have not taken me because I didn't know, you know, the bow from the stern. I think I also use that expression in my book. Um, <laughs> but I was like 19, 18, 19 years old. I just finished school or I was just finishing school. Um, you know, like, gosh, I was going to go out and see the world and I thought the Navy would help me do that. And I just, I can just remember her saying, I can still remember to this day her saying that to me. And after I sort of picked my jaw up off the ground, it was like, well, I, I don't think I have to join the Navy to find a husband. And I didn't mean it like, you know, like that, that's so, I'm so amazingly great looking or anything like that, <laughs> that I could find a husband anywhere. It was just like, I wasn't even thinking about that. It was just even, yeah. it's never even occurred to me that that was something um, that would happen. Look, look, ultimately, I don't know, eight or nine years later, I married my husband and he was in the Air Force. So it didn't actually even come to anything. Uh, but it was just, a, it was kind of just very, yeah, a typical kind of response or comment that would have been made. Mm. But you did obviously stay in the Navy for a long period of time. So, I mean, what did you enjoy about working in the Navy back then? There must have been something that kept you going even in those early, early days. Mm. Look, it, Lots of little different things along the way. I don't think it was any one thing. I mean, I, I did join because I wanted to, you know, that's the usual sort of patriotic reason someone joins the military to serve the nation. Um, that was still a very strong feeling for me, particularly because my father had died in service. Um, you know, my mother had had to leave because she married him. Um, so these sort of things still, still, you know, come into play, I think, in the subconscious. Um, and uh, look, I was young. It added a level of excitement as a young person, um, even though I was shore-based and not doing sea service, but opportunities to do things that you wouldn't do in a normal job. You know, like I could just go and work in a bank and go into the bank every day and come home and, and that's it. But, you know, the the Navy at that time, but still now, you know, gives you opportunities to do just, I mean, as you've seen from my career path, just uh, some amazing um, opportunities for travel, for work. Um, just for experiences. And, and the first time that but that probably really came to the fore for me was doing the Kokoda Trail in 1986 um, when I was on the staff at the Naval College at Jarvis Bay and they were looking for some staff to accompany the midshipmen who were under training at that time. And I just said, yeah, I'll do it, put my hand up for it. And I got the usual kind of kickback that women would get, you know, at that time. It's, oh, you know, you can't go and do this. A woman can't do it. Um, we've never had a woman go before. It's you know too much hard work. You won't make it physically, like all the just the usual um, rubbish. So anyway, cut a long story short, I did it, 
with no without really any difficulties at all. And uh, what it really made me reflect on was that this was uh, something completely unusual. I mean, who joins the Navy and goes and does the Kokoda Trail um, or Kokoda Trek? Uh, so I guess that was the start for me of thinking, well, there's there's different things that you can do that actually liven up each day, each week, each month. Um, there were lots of functions to go to. Um, so, yeah, look, it's just a, it, it, there were just lots of really good, exciting things that would come along all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, and I had made a commitment to myself that I would do 20 years, not only for me to say I've had a, a you know, a really good career and given it a good shot, but also uh, our retirement um, benefit scheme back then, uh, the DFRDB, required you to complete 20 years before you would be able to access any sort of pension. And financial independence um, as a you know young mum of a couple of young daughters was very important to me. I didn't want to be financially dependent on a man. This is uh, only about the, you know, the 80s and the early 90s. I wanted to be able to support myself if that you know, ever ventilated that I'd have to do that. So yeah. I so I stayed so I stayed in for twenty years. Um, actually, stayed in for twenty two years, and um, and then my oldest daughter was at school, and I wanted to be able to have some more flexibility around work, and you know the flexible work arrangements we have available now to to men and women in the military uh, wasn't quite as good back then. It's great now. Um, but uh, so what I did was I transferred to the reserves for a period of five years so I could work more flexibly, still support the Navy and the ADF, um, but be, be around for my, my two daughters and uh, spend time with them in school. Um, and then I came back to full-time service in 2008, uh, primarily because I was kind of itching to get back to full-time work. But then, but then as things changed. 2008 was really when I started to get, you know, my hands into some really kind of juicy work around uh, women's participation. And that, and then again, it was just one job after another that kept me um, staying doing that. And really, it's been very fulfilling and very satisfying. So if I'd looked at myself, look at myself as a midshipman in 1981 and tried to maybe look ahead 39 years, <laughs> um, I probably would have never have thought that I would be where I am today. Uh, but there's been a whole lot of negative and positive experiences that have occurred in those 39 years um, that have enabled me to do some really good work and to really enjoy the work that I've been doing and doing work that I feel has added some value to our organisation. Mm. Uh, you talk in your book about the positive changes that came from the introduction of the Sex Discrimination Act in 1984. Mm. Uh, you say women like me were able to ride the groundswell of that change over the following 30 years or so and become the role models for the women who followed us. Can you describe some of the positive changes that you've seen and what kind of impact this has had? The first change really was that the women's services were disbanded and women were uh, transferred into the men's service. So we went from the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service into the Royal Australian Navy. Now, that did come with its own problems and complications because it was a bit like adding women and stirring, and I do refer to that in the book it's a way of and it's quite common in male-dominated organizations just to add women and stir thinking that that's the way that you actually integrate women into an organization Um, well it's not and uh, we had a similar experience when we tried doing that um, putting women on ships um, in the early 1990s Um, but the sex discrimination act meant that the women's services were disbanded uh, we were moved into the men's services there were some 
you know, on consequential changes that occurred, for example, in relation to uniforms, that meant that we started to get, you know, uh, more practical, um, useful uniforms that were similar to the men's. But there were still some restrictions on women's service, even with the Sex Discrimination Act, and and the military had or the government had waivers in relation to that. And, and one of them was that women couldn't serve in combat-related or combat roles. Now, that stayed in place until um, the early 1990s when uh, the government lifted the gender restrictions on gen, you know, women in putting women into combat-related roles. So for the Navy, that primarily meant opening up ev- almost every position in the Navy to women. So, you know, women could become engineers, they could become ship drivers, they could be pilots, um, uh, you know, technicians of all description, um, with the exception of, I think, our divers, which are equivalent to the US Navy SEALs, women could apply and join to become any one of the employment occupations we had in the Navy. Uh, you know, both men and women would be taken. And so we've had, you know, women driving ships since the early 1990s, uh, commanding ships since the late 1990s. Uh, we've had pilots, um, you know, we've had uh, senior engineers serving at sea. Uh, it's you know, and you speak to any woman in the navy today, and of course, sea service is just as natural as getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so I think that's been the the biggest and the best change for us. Now, that that itself was a sort of a bit of a cultural journey because there were some difficulties in doing that. That adding women and stirring bit meant that um, there wasn't sort of really a a commensurate sort of cultural change program at the time that just helped men, particularly in the organisation, adapt to women coming into their space, which is essentially what we were doing when uh, we when we started to join ships and when we started to do the jobs that men did. Um, and I do talk a little bit about this in in the book, but it's not really a focus of the book. Um, but it's important to understand that that was difficult for both men and women at the time. Um, mm. And I think you know, and I think as an organisation. Um, you know, the Navy did as the best that it could under the circumstances, but we, I, I feel like we kind of a bit muddled through it. Um, but, you know, we've learned. We've learned along the way. Mm. And your own career did start to take a bit of a, a turn. You mentioned that there came a point where you uh, were becoming known as that gender diversity <laughs> chick. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So at what point, I mean, you mentioned you started as a logistics officer. So at what point did your career take that turn into the gender space and how did it come about? Yeah, um, I would say it probably was, it started around about the 1990s when uh, we'd, we'd had a few um, incidents uh, uh, with women at sea um, with, with very negative media reporting around them. And uh, it was necessary for the Navy and um, for the military in general to uh, start to uh, develop some policy around how to deal with the treatment of women. Um, and deal with, you know, complaints of um, sexual harassment and sexual assault and, and bullying and those sorts of things that were occurring on ships um, and in other male-dominated domains of the military uh, because up to that point we hadn't sort of really had those mechanisms. And at that point we the Navy certainly had developed um, uh, what they called the Good Working Relationships Program, which was our first step into some form of cultural change around um, getting people to understand how we should treat each other in the workplace. And so we, we the Navy trained people to be uh, equity advisors to be able to support victims of those kind of inappropriate behaviours or sexual misconduct. Um, 
for myself, the, the journey really began um, way back when I was 20 years old. And um, I was the victim of a sexual assault uh, that occurred uh, on a Navy base in Navy accommodation. It was perpetrated by a Navy person, uh, unknown to me personally. It wasn't a case of what they call date rape or anything like that. Um, it was after a formal dinner in the mess that we were living in. Um, it was um, There was no consent. It was against my will and it, it occurred. Um, and I did perhaps what a lot of young people do is that they block it out or they, they don't want to think that it happened. I also recall thinking at the time that there wasn't really any mechanisms to support me. Uh, we didn't really have any policies to deal with this kind of thing. I didn't know who I could go to. I didn't know that I could go to the civilian police. I think back in those days uh, I wouldn't have been believed. Uh, I mm. would have been accused of, you know, drinking too much alcohol, so therefore it's my fault. I mean, a lot of the victim blaming that even goes on still today. Mm. Um, and I, but anyway, but that story itself is not really a great focus in my book. But what I what I wanted to bring out of that was uh, how it then I felt that it then drove me to to really want to help make a change for women and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I stayed as long as I did uh, because I felt that I could do that now I know women who have suffered similar um, experiences to me uh, who have left and I know some who have stayed and uh, and who still have difficulty in um, accepting that that occurred and dealing with it um, and everybody's been on their own journey and I've been through my own journey with it as well too, both legally um, and in other ways. But for me, um, I really feel it was the driving force behind uh, the, all the steps that I've taken really in all my time in the Navy, even just literally staying in for the first 22 years, I think was to uh, to be there and make sure that I did, if I withdrew and all the other women withdrew, we'd have no women officers in the Navy. Um, so some of us mm. just had to make a stand you know, and to be there to help with the change. Mm. Well, I'm very sorry that that happened mm. to you. Yeah, I think people react differently to mm. traumatic or big events like that, but I can understand that you would feel strongly that you wanted to make a change. If you had felt that you had that resilience and that drive mm. to keep moving forward, it's a very powerful motivator for change, isn't it? You did go on to work with organisations like UN Women in, mm -hmm. in countries like Jordan and Ukraine um, and my understanding that was initially on secondment from the ADF. Mm -hmm. So what did that work look like exactly and are there any particular moments that have really stuck with you? Yeah. Um, it's probably best to, if I could go back a little bit to uh, how all this started. Um, so in 2002, I was part of a very small team that was sent to a little island called Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean um, to do a sort of a quick investigation into some allegations of inappropriate behaviour. And uh, building on the work that Navy had been doing around the Good Working Relationships Program, um, Navy leadership at that time felt that there was there was some failing in our systems around uh people's values, um, adhering to Navy's values, uh, their lack of respect for colleagues in the workplace. Um, and so arising out of that was an opportunity to, you know, to set up a new position that was going to examine Navy's organisational culture. So that was the start, I think, it's about 2002. This was the start of Navy's journey 
uh, in the cultural reform space that has been going on very much since then and still going on and still doing a really, really fantastic job. And then I came back into that organisational role again in 2008 in order to get back into full-time work. Nobody else wanted the role. Cultural reform was still a new thing. Um, And so I thought, yeah, I'm going to take this. Why not? Uh, And uh, I then happened to be very well supported by the Deputy Chief of Navy at the time, uh, Rear Admiral David Thomas, uh, who's a fantastic man, and I still see him occasionally at my local coffee shop. And uh, he supported me with some funding. Um, He supported me um, in, in all ways to look to see what it was that we could do that might contribute to women's retention. So what are the things that we could do that might help women stay in the organisation? And what were some of the ways that we could actually help improve their leadership opportunities and their leadership development? And so we cre- you know, we created some programs for networking, for mentoring, um, for leadership development. And these programs are still going on today and they're still being funded today. So I'm really proud of that, that legacy that I, I left in that role. And from that role, um, it then sort of flowed into just a few more jobs that were actually then continually created for me to move into. Um, the next role was the as a Navy Women's Strategic Advisor, set up to advise senior leadership on on these same issues, but to give it give the role some more um, power. And it was in that role that I actually uh, first encountered uh, NATO in Brussels, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, and the work that NATO was doing around women's participation in NATO armed forces, and also how NATO was contributing to uh, incorporating a gender perspective into operations um, at, at that time, which were in Afghanistan and Kosovo. And so I'd gone along in my in my role as the Navy Women's Strategic Advisor, I'd gone along to this conference in uh, in NATO, in Brussels, in June of 2012, and I learned all about gender advisors and what they do um, in operations, mm. in the operational space. Right. Um, now, there's a long story behind uh, why these gender advisors have been established. They all emanate from um, the United Nations Security Council resolutions that relate to uh, the impact of conflict on women and girls and incorporating a gender perspective into peace and security efforts. So that was my introduction to the, you know this sort of agenda around the role that gender plays in peace and security, and that was with NATO, um, and that uh, that of course led to me deploying in 2013 as the first ADF gender advisor to um, NATO operations in Afghanistan, um, and then during that time that I was there, it had become apparent to uh, the ADF's leadership here in Australia that uh, they were not progressing their responsibilities under the Australian Government National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, which had been released in 2012. And so this other role was then created for me. Um, I got promoted to, you know, captain. Um, I was brought back from my deployment and put into this uh, position to, uh, to get on and implement the National Action Plan within the ADF. Now, in this role and also the preceding roles that I had had, I had benefited from working closely with UN Women. Um, locally, it was uh, with uh, Julia Mackay, who was then the executive director of UN Women um, Australia, um, and Navy had brought her in, I think, around about 2011 or 12, to help advise on the way in which we were implementing some internal cultural reform around the treatment of women. 
and that started right. also started her that started her journey, uh, which lasted quite a few years uh, with the ADF, and she subsequently became the gender advisor to the chief of defence force. Uh, she's now left that role and moved on. Um, so that was so that's when I first really met, really sort of really had something to do with UN Women, um, and then it just kept continued to evolve. And as uh, as I was implementing the national action plan, one of um, the senior leadership team in the military uh, decided that we would create a secondment with UN Women in New York uh, for five years um, and send two or three uh, military officers over there to. Uh, you know, to become, you know, to, to, to learn more broadly about uh, UN women's uh, efforts around gender equality and women's empowerment um, and particularly how that might look like in sort of peace and security efforts, which UN women does support around the world in various countries and, and various hotspots. So we created this secondment and uh, it sort of just made sense that I would be the first person that would uh, take up the secondment um, having completed almost three years implementing the National Action Plan, probably being the most um, experienced and skilled gender, peace and security expert at that time and uh, and went on this deployment to to UN. Mm. That, to, that to me uh, was, the, was the opportunity that really opened up my world on the issue of gender, peace and security um, and also my time as a director. So I, you know, I, I travelled a lot. I went and spoke at a lot of conferences. I went to a lot of workshops around the world. Um, you know, I, I built this really great international um, network, which I still have to this day, tapping into um, people all around the world who are working on this same agenda, who are all implementing national action plans, who are all there supporting women's equality in uh, militaries and police forces around the world. So on any one day, I could have been, you know, speaking at a, a gender conference in Abu Dhabi on um, gender equality and peacekeeping, or in Jordan conducting conflict-related sexual violence training. Um, that you know, there was just this variety of work that uh, that I was there that I was able to contribute to, and it put me in different countries, in different contexts, in different cultures, and getting a broader picture of how. Um, when you sort of compare what we've been doing in Australia around women's participation and gender mainstreaming, and then you see how other countries are doing it, and you get a really good idea and sense then of you know how progressive some countries are and, and how some are not. Again, it was you know I would never have thought as a young midshipman when I first joined, just joining as a logistics officer, that I would ever get to be part of a very big global movement um, involving large international organisations small organisations, non-government organisations, academics, think tanks, you know, practitioners, um, a whole range of people that I've been exposed to outside of the military that just continued to um, broaden my knowledge and experience about these issues. And so, of course, what happened to me when I came back from that posting in New York was really the understanding that I'd probably outgrown um, the ADF uh, I'd done the most senior position. There was not really much for me to come back to in terms of work, and I wanted to stay working in this space. I really wanted to capitalise on my international network. I wanted to capitalise on the, all that experience and knowledge that I'd gained, and I wanted to keep doing work that I loved. So it was so important for me to uh, to make that transition uh, from the ADF, take what I had got from that organisation, which has been some terrific skills, um, particularly around leadership, um, cultural reform, um, you know, and in the gender space, and take it and continue to use it to help support 
other countries, other organisations, other women. And I work with women individually as a mentor, as a coach, or I work with organisations like the Jordanian uh, security sector that I'm working with at the moment to be part of, you know, the changes that their government wants to see in their militaries and their police Mm. for women. And I can tell you this, every woman that I meet, no matter the country, the language they speak, the culture they come from, the service that they, they are in, they all want equality. They all want respect. They all want to be able to do, uh, to have equal access to opportunities that are offered to men. They want to break down some of the social norms um, and gender stereotypes that apply in their cultures. They want, for example, they want to be able to share the, you know, the unpaid labour, home labour uh, or care work. They, uh, they want to be part of the military to the same extent that their male colleagues are. And so that doesn't change. Mm. It, it, all women yeah. around the world are in, in those circumstances, I'm finding, are after the same thing. So for me that has probably been the most wonderful thing to come out of all this work I've been doing over the last 10 years or so is, is knowing that and being part of that is really energising and I get up each morning knowing that I'm doing what I love and that's... To me, that's the most important thing. Well, yeah, you mentioned that you left the Navy only very recently in 2018. Mm. That must have been such a big moment for you after what ended up being nearly four decades of service. How did you prepare for that and what, what's that transition been like? Uh, probably around about 2016, I started to uh, formulate my ideas for uh, transitioning out uh, just and creating a consultancy that would allow me to continue to do the work in the environment that I'm familiar with, which is why I continue to work primarily with armed forces and police forces around the world uh, because that is my background and I understand them, they understand me, they feel more confident with someone who's from that background. Um, So in terms of um, preparing, um, I actually worked with a business coach, um, a wonderful lady called Amanda Cromer who lives in Tasmania. And uh, we've done a significant amount of work. Um, initially, I did one of her early programs to, to try, really try and identify uh, who I was, what, what I wanted to do, um, you know, what my focus was going to be, my business, what it was going to look like, what did it mean to me, um, even so much as, you know, working out my colours that I now use, you know, in all my materials and on my website and um, that, that kind of really reflect uh, who I am. And we, so we did a lot of work delving into that. That was a really great kind of professional development program um, that really got me thinking about, well, what did I want to call the business? What did I want it to to deliver? Um, Who did I want to serve? Um, And it really enabled me to focus well on that. And so that was the kind of, I guess, the esoteric stuff. She also helped me with this, you know, there's a kind of practical business uh, transition as well too, really getting my head around what it is like to run a business, although, you know, it's not a, it's, it's a, I'm a sole trader. It's a small consultancy. It's just me. Um, but I still have to keep on top of all these things. And so even just getting all of that under my belt as well too, having you know been in a career for a very long time, doing work a certain way, and then all of a sudden having to manage all these sorts of things for myself. So I stepped out of uh, full-time service and into my consulting role um, and have not looked back. Well, you've now got your first book coming out, which is titled uh, Against the Wind, How Women Can Be Their Authentic Selves in Male-Dominated Professions. Why did you want to write this book and what do you hope to achieve with it? Mm. I've been toying with the idea of writing a book for about five years. 
uh, and I and I just sort of thought, well, who wants to read my story about my career? But what I realised was that um, there was a lot more to the story than just my story, and it was really about what I had learnt over the years about being a woman in a male-dominated organisation. And I had been sharing bits and pieces of it uh, at various workshops and that I was running for women or in, in mentoring sessions that I was doing with women or even just talking about uh, my career and what I had learned from it. And I thought, well, this is silly. I really should pull all this together um, and uh, kind of just create it. it. It actually sort of formed itself. It evolved into a bit of a model. Um, which I call the Be What You Can't See model. And that comes out of um, uh, an article that was written about me in 2018 that was um, published in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, in which I said uh, that it was really important that where there are no role models for women, of which there are still many um, contexts and organisations and situations where there are no role models, that that, that a woman has to step up and be that person for the first time. Um, and we can't always wait for role models. So we can't wait to see it to be it. Um, and we shouldn't be telling women you can't be it if you can't see it or if you can't see it, you can't be it. Um, my view is that having taken up so many roles and so many instances where I've had to be the first woman to do something um, or taking opportunities and just getting on with them um, and, you know, high visibility projects and things like that and just saying yes and just getting on and doing it, um, resulted in me sort of this telling women that it's really important that you, you you can be what you can't see. Don't limit yourself to thinking, especially for women in the military or, you know, sort of security organisations who tend to um, look at what's above them and then they think either they can't see it um, or what they do see they don't like and they don't want to be it in terms of maybe the style of leadership of certain men and women and so on. Um, and so I wanted to say to them, just think outside the square. I've had a very unusual military career. Um, I haven't been a straightforward logistics officer, um, unlike some of my other female colleagues. Um, I have really gone, you know, kind of in swings and roundabouts all over the place. And then, of course, working in the gender space for the last 10 or 11 years has been completely, um, you know, off off, uh, off track. Um, <laughs> so I just say to them, you know, this, this is an opportunity for you to see that there are other things in your career that you could tap into that don't necessarily... Uh, just fit the mainstream sort of kind of career profile um, that you have. I, mm. I have to throw in here that I, I saw um, on the news today uh, a release of uh, the Defence Minister's International Women's Day um, speech that she's giving today uh, somewhere in Canberra. And what I loved about it was that she herself, who's an ex-military member, talks exactly about what I say in my book. And that is that she she said that she joined the military, uh, she conformed to that the stereotypical behaviour. Um, she felt that if she did that and then just did her job and that she'd be promoted on merit, I mean, these are her words, uh, that she would just get on in her career. And she said it wasn't until Elizabeth Broderick did her review of the treatment of women in the ADF in 2012 that she actually learned that there is value to having women in leadership and we need more women in leadership in order for things to change and for, you know, in order for better decisions to be made and in order for that gender perspective to be included and that, you know, women were not men and that that realisation actually enabled her to stop being the person that she had made herself to be and actually look at her own leadership style, you know, her own values, um, 
you know, the, herself and decide to be different. And I thought mm. it just was, to me, it was like almost, a, you know, a validation of what I've written in my book. Um, and here's a, you know, high-profile woman uh, like Linda Reynolds saying exactly that. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to say to women is it step outside of the box. Um, you know, just because you're in the military doesn't mean it's yes, sir, no, sir, you know, and you can't do anything outside of that. It's really important that for me that women stop trying to be men. There's no need for that own up to being a woman, accept it, embrace it, use it, but, you know, at the end of the day, be true to themselves, whatever that mm. whatever that self looks like. Well, I do like the line in the book where you say, I always felt like I led like a woman. Mm. Um, and you also give some examples of what feminine leadership looks like. So firstly, what do you mean by that line, I always felt like I led like a woman and, and what does, you know, what are some of those examples of feminine leadership? Mm. Look, I think I just always led in a way that was true to me. I I believe that I just was who I was. Now, I stumbled and fell and made mistakes along the way. I did some silly things. I might have embarrassed myself. Um, I do say in the book I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole. I may not necessarily have been the right person um, to be in a military organisation because I questioned things a lot. Um, I wouldn't necessarily do the right thing. I wouldn't necessarily do what I was told. Um, but look, I, I just led as a, you know in those early years as a young person would. Um, I cried with some of my sailors. I laughed with some of my sailors. I was emotionally injured. I was physically injured. Um, you know, I was just a normal human being, and uh, mm. I liked people. I liked the people who worked for me. I liked the people that I worked for mostly, um, mostly men because there wasn't really a lot of women around. Um, but there was, of course, there were some negative uh, things that happened as well too. And as I said, that came with understanding that, you know, men could cry uh, or that, you know, we could laugh in situations that we should laugh in, that we didn't have to be, you know, standing in front of someone two inches away and screaming orders at them, um, which mm. you know, was pretty much a way that people used to talk to each other, but, you know, back in and the day. interesting because you do hear a lot about the benefits for women of seeing female leadership, but I hadn't really thought about that it's also very beneficial for men to see that there are <laughs> other ways of operating. And, in yeah. fact, yeah, that human side, which I think everyone, I don't think it's just women that want to see that from their leaders, it's probably quite refreshing for for men as well. Uh, look, I think it's important. I think it's important that we understand that there are, you know, feminine and masculine sort of attributes that both men and women can have, and that actually they're all acceptable, and they're mm. all and they, and, they, and they can be used in different contexts and in different situations. And why do we? Why do men just feel they have to have masculine attributes and not, um, you know, not listen to the feminine uh, attributes that they might have, and vice versa? And so, what I really try to say is that just as a woman. Don't shy away from being a woman, but just lead as you would lead, you know, that that is authentic to yourself is the most yeah. important thing. So International Women's Day is nearly upon us. Um, and while it is a day to celebrate women's achievements and the gains that we've made in terms of gender equality, it's also an opportunity to call out the issues that remain. What do you think are the most urgent challenges for women today? Yeah, Um for me, it's definitely violence against women. This is something that we have been grappling with in our military, in militaries around the world, even in police forces as well with high levels of um, sexual harassment. Um, sexual violence is a, is a pandemic that is affecting um, developed countries like Australia as much as we might see it in countries like 
the Congo or South Sudan in conflict environments. So it's not isolated just to those communities where uh, faith and cultural norms might, you know, sort of surpass laws or legislation around women's rights. This is happening in countries like Australia and other developed countries like the US where, you know, one in th- you know one woman a week in Australia is being killed by an intimate partner, where, you know, one in three or four women are being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted uh, in their lifetime. And, and that's sort of as you've seen from the, you know, the recent coverage of the Hannah Clark um, and family murders, um, this is a situation where, you know, society is, is continuing to ignore the fact that as a society we aim to make excuses for the perpetrators of this kind of violence, which are generally men, if we're talking about uh, sexual violence and and, uh, domestic violence, and continue to blame women uh, for the men's actions. Now, we see that in media reporting. We see that in commentary from officials. um, And I'm sure that you're aware of the statement from the Queensland police officer that um, has, of course, since been um, retracted and and the commissioner has apologised. Yeah. But this is what we're dealing with. This is society's attitudes towards violence against women. Now, I'm not talking, you know, I'm not an expert on violence against men. I'm not an expert on mental health issues for men. I understand that they are all issues too that need to be resolved. But this this pandemic of violence against women is killing the women in this country. Mm. Um And it's mostly related to domestic violence and something has to be done. Now, you cannot say, you cannot put your hand on your heart in Australia and say we have gender equality just because, um, you know, I get paid the same as a a man or another person for equal work of equal value. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. And if women are continuing to be treated this way and killed because of the attitudes that people hold in society, then equality still does not exist for women. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, the murder of Hannah Clark and her three kids, which, uh, you know, that actually just happened a few streets away from our house. <laughs> it still brings me to tears every time I think about it or see it in the news. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I think this issue of women not feeling safe and and certainly not being safe, you know, it just shakes me to the core really. I mean, do you get the sense that we are, we are starting to see any positive shift? I mean, you talked earlier about your own experience as well and I know you talk in the book about, you know, how movements like Me Too kind of show certainly in the workplace. I know we were just talking about domestic violence but, you know, these um, power imbalances I guess that are still there. Do you get a sense that we are st- starting to see a real shift or any shift in a more positive direction? Look, I'd say a couple of things. I think that um, current reporting on gender equality in Australia through the uh, Workplace Gender Equality Agency indicates that more and more organisations now are putting in place policies to support victims of domestic violence and family violence. Um, And I think that's a great first step to at least supporting their employees who might be going through this kind of experience. Now, that's something that would never have occurred five years ago. So, there is, you know, we're starting the discussion about sort of how victims can be supported. The next step, of course, is to, you know, to start the discussion on how perpetrators can be stopped um, or potential perpetrators can be stopped. Um, in terms of uh, the Me Too movement, um, and I was fortunate to meet Tarana Burke in 2017. She's essentially the founder of the Me Too movement. 
Um, and it arose out of a similar experience for her as it was for me uh, in her younger years. Um, and she is doing exactly what I'm doing, which is supporting women, um, in her case, women of uh, sexual violence. And uh, she was just an absolutely awesome woman to listen to. When you hear about the work that she's doing, which is putting the spotlight back on the men who are perpetrating this, the, you know, this kind of behaviour, supporting the women who are coming forward. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic that it, in the last couple of days we've seen the verdicts in the Weinstein case, um, mm. you know, where he's been found guilty of a number of um, offences and will spend a few years in jail. Now, that's a great outcome. Uh, in a you know in a in a society and times when often women are not believed, where there is that power imbalance, you know, where someone very powerful is saying no, this didn't happen, and someone in a lesser, more subordinate position is saying yes, it did. Uh, so I think there's been a bit of a change, and I think the Me Too movement has really allowed women to step up and speak about these experiences and start to hold people to account. And I have to say, one of the really important messages that are coming out of International Women's Day this year. Um, and the the global theme, which is around generation equality, is to actually hold um, leaders and people to account. You know, actually, you know, sort of step up and 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 make noise and speak out and support people and to you know to do whatever it is that you can do that's going to make people more aware that gender equality is is really one of the most important things that we need to achieve in our lifetime, and, and we've still got a long way to go. Mm. Um, well, I did want to ask on a slightly more positive note how you do plan to mark International Women's Day this year. Um, you know, as we did mention, it is also a time to celebrate the wins. Are you? What are some of the women's achievements you'll be celebrating and, yeah, what do you plan to do? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm really proud that I've been asked to be the keynote speaker at the Defence International Women's Day event on the 11th of March um, in which I intend to highlight some of these things that we've just touched on. Uh, in terms of uh, the global progress on gender equality and, and particularly the issue around violence against women and girls and um, what are some of the things that we could do individually and collectively to address that. Um, I have a couple of other uh, International Women's Day events in Brisbane and the Gold Coast where I'll be uh, sharing my experiences with uh, UN Women and the work that UN Women does um, and talking a bit about my career and, and what has brought about some of the things that I'm doing now, which we've discussed this whole uh, in this in this whole podcast, and also leading up to International Women's Day, uh, launching my book on the fourth of March, uh, along with Avril Henry, who kindly wrote the foreword to my book, um, and it will be at a private event that Avril is um, hosting, uh, one of her women's leadership uh, workshops, and again uh, sharing my story. So it's a way to actually uh, let other women see that they can be what they can't see and that I, you know, I've joined at a time which is probably a little bit different to their experiences because most women I now meet have been in far less period of time than me. Um, and so some of my experiences are a bit dated, but it is just to share that message that women's achievements are really important. And I still stay in 2020 when someone, when a woman does something for the first time, we ought to be celebrating it. We ought to be, you know, putting her up on the pedestal and saying, that's a bloody fantastic thing that, you know, that you've done. And I don't care whether it's the, you know, the first African-American woman who flies to the moon, um, you know, or uh, we've just had the first Swedish female chief of Navy, and I think she's probably the first female chief of Navy in the world. Um, these are right. the sorts of things that we should be saying, hey, look, you know, women are finally starting to get into these roles that have been denied to us for 
hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and we've still got a long way to go. Well, look, we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast, which you've certainly done in spades over the course of your Mm -hmm. career. What do you think has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? I think personally for me, it was actually taking up a posting on a ship and it was a, and it was also a bit of a turning point for me too. Um, and as I mentioned before, it was this is the mid early to mid 1990s. It was a difficult time. I was uh, posted to a ship. It was HMO Swan, which was an old Vietnam War era destroyer escort, um, not built to have mixed genders on board. Um, and there was a crew of 212. Uh, I was one of two women. Um, two female officers, and I was in charge of the logistics department. So as I mentioned before, I hadn't had the benefit of, you know, 15 years beforehand of going to sea as a junior officer and learning the ropes and, and gaining that, you know, the skills and knowledge that come with that. I was thrust into it. I was told I needed to do it if I wanted to get promoted. Um, I did want to get promoted, um, so I thought that I'd do it. It scared the crap out of me, to be honest. Not not the logistics stuff. I knew my logistics stuff. It was more the sea environment uh, the culture. Uh, also, I was responsible for, you know, the helo control, so I had to bring helicopters in and out. Um, I was also a nuclear, biological and chemical defence officer, so I was expected to know what to do, you know, in an emergencies um, when we had any attacks of that nature uh, and show leadership. And I was one of the senior leadership team. Um, and uh, I came out of that posting um, so proud of myself. It, it was a year-long posting. To me, it was uh, it was achieving a milestone. It, it didn't. It became less about doing it to get promoted, and more about actually achieving something that I never thought would occur, um, that I'd ever get a chance to do. That was bloody rough, you know. Going to sea as a thirty-five-year-old female officer in charge of a department and had never been to sea before um, was tough. Um, and so, at times, I felt a bit like a fish out of water. And, and pardon the pun. Uh, but to me, that was a, it was a major milestone that I felt that I had done really well in. How did you overcome that sort of self-doubt and, and fear? Um, well, I guess I just, it's a bit like I say in, you know, one of my um, things I say to women is say yes and work out how later. Um, this is everything that I've been saying that's important to women, you know, opening up these opportunities and getting on and do it. And how could I say that to women if I wasn't prepared to do it myself? So I just actually got on and did it, and I I did it uh, the best to my ability. Um, I often had to rely on my senior sailors to, you know, to help me get through particular moments. I wasn't shy of, in asking for um, advice and guidance from those who knew what they were doing. Um, I didn't care that people knew that I, you know, hadn't been to sea for before and that I was a newbie um, because I was. And so what was the point in pretending otherwise? Um, so I opened myself up and I exposed myself and, you know, there, there were some negative, uh, you know, experiences as a result of that. But in the main, I felt it was the best way to be is not to try and pretend mm. that I know everything. I can do everything but just, you know, to get on and do it. And then it became a bit of a, it's like, by, you know, putting a red flag in front of a bull. It's like, well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I achieved that. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And just finally, I mean, if there's a woman listening who's thinking, you know, that she would like to take her career in a new direction or to step up and be that first in her field, do you have any final tips for her? Yeah. Look, 
I know it's very easy to sit comfortably in the in the roles that you are, and I mean, I did it for the first twenty odd years. Uh, and you thought, you know, you sort of think, well, do I have the courage to step out of this and do something else that I want to do? And I know that I'm coming from a bit of a privileged position because, uh, yes, financially I'm comfortable because of my age and my stage, um, my pension. You know, I own my own home, so I can say I have to acknowledge that privilege. But what I do say is really important that. That, and I say this for women, but it is the same for men, you know, what is life if you can't get on and do what you want to do, that you're passionate about, that you love, that you feel is your purpose, and why not make work out of it? So if that's what you want to do, find a job that allows you to do it or make the job that allows you to do it or create your own business to not be afraid of what's outside that door that you're currently sitting behind. So I just say to women, Look for those opportunities that are going to take you in a different path, whether you stay in the organisation you're in, whether you step out and move into something else. And it might be study. It might be writing a book. It might be writing for a journal um, or, or just running a blog even. I mean, these are all sorts of things that you can do that are actually going to enable you to follow your purpose and passion. And then little by little, look for opportunities for work in those areas that will then take you off on this different track and, and probably the track that you are meant to be on. Brilliant. Well, we'll have more information on your book and a link to your website in the show notes. But thank you so much for your time today, Jen. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Oh, no, thank you. The pleasure's been all mine. Thank you, Jackie. That was Jennifer Whitworth, international gender expert and author of the new book, Against the Wind. You can find Jennifer online at jenniferwhitworth.com and we'll include a link in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening. If this discussion has raised any issues for you, there is help available. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 RESPECT to access support at any time of the day or night.